I am like the roaring lion in the dream. My roaring will wake you up from this dream unto reality. This is The Lion's Roar, the DSI podcast all about understanding the teachings of Satya Sai Baba in their truest form. Behold, all of you in this grand assembly have witnessed the hostility this Sishupala has borne towards me. You are all also aware of all that he has done to spite me behind my back. The air in the royal court is thick with shock and anticipation as Lord Krishna steps down from the dais and turns to address the vast gathering of kings and onlookers. I granted his mother a boon that I would pardon 100 offences of his, but today, that number, O kings, has reached fullness. Sishupala, your time is up. And with that, Krishna turns with lightning speed. He grabs the sacred plate from Yudhishthira's surprised hands with deadly accuracy. He flings the plate, beheading the malicious Sishupala. Wah, Eram! Oh my goodness, he's done it! Krishna has beheaded the wicked Sishupala. What's going to happen now? Sai Ram, Pradhani here. You must be wondering what in the world you've walked into. Stay with me, we're right in the thick of Discourse 4, where Swami shares the story of the killing of Sishupala with some incredible insight. But I think it's time for a flashback. Join me as we rewind for some context. We're in the crowd of onlookers at the Rajasuya Yagna, or consecration ceremony of King Yudhishthira, you know, the eldest of the five Pandava brothers. The question has arisen as to who amongst this esteemed gathering should be honoured with the first offering following the ceremony. There are several men of distinction assembled, like Bhishma, Drona, and so on, so we're just waiting on the Pandava royals to announce their decision. Ah, oh, here comes Sahadeva. Looks like he's going to make an announcement. Respected elders, kings and friends, in the august presence of all those assembled in this hall, His Majesty King Yudhishthira has decreed that the honour of the first offering will be proffered to that chief bull of the Vrishni race, the jewel-like Skyon of the Yadu clan, the peerless son of the mighty Vasudeva, Krishna. King Yudhishthira invites Krishna to be seated and pours water from a golden vessel as he washes Krishna's feet with loving humility. And now he presents to Krishna the traditional offering of an ornate plate laden with beetle leaves and arica nuts. As we look around, all the guests smile and nod in agreement with this choice. Well, all except for one. It looks like Krishna's own cousin, Sishupala, the king of Chedi, is seething with rage at Yudhishthira's decision. Wicked persons cannot understand the inner meaning and motives of other people. Guided merely by external formalities and selfish considerations, they criticize and abuse others out of malice and envy. This was exactly what the narrow-minded Sishupala did on this occasion. Right in front of the great teachers, great sages and great men of honor and distinction, the wicked Sishupala began showering virulent abuses on Sri Krishna. Eyes bloodshot with rage, Sishupala speaks with teeth clenched, voice trembling in anger. O son of Pandu, this conduct is not appropriate for you. You are too young to understand the mistake you are making in choosing Krishna. 
This Mother Sudhana is neither a sacrificial priest, nor a preceptor, nor a king. He does not deserve this worship. This Krishna is a thief who stole butter. He stole the saris of the young cowherd girls. What has he achieved that is so worthy of praise? What is so remarkable in this, in this fellow having supported for a week the Govardhana Mount, which is like an anthill? The younger Pandavas erupt in verbal retaliation and harsh words are exchanged between them and Sishupala. Sishupala spares no one, not even the venerable Bhishma. The mad king of Chedi goads the other kings in the assembly, scheming ways that the sacrifice could be obstructed. Finally, Sishupala challenges Krishna and says, <laughs> Krishna, I challenge you. Come, fight with me if you dare, until I slay you today along with all these foolish Pandavas. With childishness they have worshipped you, though you are unworthy of worship. You are only a slave, not a king, and you do not even deserve to be slain by me. Krishna speaks. O oh, kings, this wicked-minded one is a great enemy to the Satvata race. Though we have never sought to injure him, he has constantly meant us malintent. Krishna then lists out every offence, every cruel act of Sishupala's. <laughs> Krishna, Krishna, pardon me if you please, pardon me not. But angry or friendly, what can you do to me? Krishna says, Behold, all of you in this grand assembly have witnessed the hostility this Sishupala has borne towards me. You are all also aware of all that he has done to spite me behind my back. I granted his mother a boon that I would pardon 100 offences of his. But today, that number, O kings, has reached fullness. Sishupala, your time is up. And then, guess what happens? As Sishupala's blood drips onto Krishna's sacred feet, the life flame arises from Sishupala's dead body and merges into Lord Krishna. now fast forward to 2020 and try to unpack the mysteries of the Lord's divine plate, I mean play. It begs the question, doesn't it, how is it that someone can spend their entire life loathing God until the very moment of their death and yet attain the ultimate goal of becoming one with God? Thankfully for us, Yudhishthira had the same question. When he asked Narada how such a traitor and vicious enemy of Krishna like Sishupala could have such a glorious end, Narada explained, Abuse or praise pertain to the body only. The supreme soul is beyond all pairs of opposites. Whether out of hatred or love, lust or envy, whatever the feeling, it is enough if the Lord's name is remembered incessantly. It's almost like the fact that these feelings are directed towards God sanctifies them. Swami goes on to point out that even devotees only remember God when they see his photo or visit the temple. But Sishupala's mind was on Krishna at all places, at all times, whether waking or sleeping. And it was because of this constant, ceaseless remembrance of Krishna that Sishupala merged in him. Swami then reveals the inner workings of God. God's eye does not see purity or impurity. It is all in your vision only. As you think, so you become. You look at the world through coloured glasses and wrongly attribute these colours to the world. It is your defective vision that makes you see defects which do not exist in creation. Let's take a moment to think about this. 
It is our defective vision that makes us see the defects that do not exist. All the input through our senses are essentially subjective in nature. They change our view of the world and send us into a spiral of judgment and justification. So then, is it sensible for us to rely so heavily on these seemingly defective instruments of perception? Interestingly, Swami actually asserts that the senses themselves are free from defects. Hang on, Swami, if our senses aren't defective, then what exactly is causing this defective vision? Swami explains that the defects which we attribute to our senses are nothing but defects in our own thought processes and feelings. He tells us that if the senses are properly used, they'll offer us the right impressions. In the book Conversations with Bhagavan Sri Satyasai Baba, Swami gives an eye-opening explanation when John Hislop asks Swami to elaborate on his statement that the world is a mirror. The world is a mirror and life is the reflection of God. If the mirror is pure, only God is seen. The opposites, good and bad, are no longer seen at all. There is only God. If the world is not seen, then there is neither mirror nor any reflection. We have the idea of the world only because of the mirror effect. The mirror or world exists only as long as our desires exist. The world here refers to the inside sense world. We capture the world through the senses. These senses are seen outside. It is only because of the illusion of the senses that there appears to be a body. A corpse is burned when the wood is set afire. The inner senses correspond to the wood. When they are burned through inquiry and spiritual practice, the body automatically disappears. Both inquiry and practice are necessary. For us, the world is as we see it. It takes shape for us according to our viewpoint. If your viewpoint is that all is God, then everything we see is God. Suddenly, the so-called reality of this world and our individuality is fading, isn't it? It has taken some long discussion and serious contemplation for us as a team to come to terms with two statements in particular that Swami makes in his answer to Hislop. It is only because of the illusion of the senses that there appears to be a body, and the world takes shape according to our viewpoint. If we reconcile these two statements with what Swami's been talking about in Discourse 4, then perhaps we need to take a good hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do we really see God everywhere? Or are we allowing our senses to run wild and colour the glasses with which we take in this fantastic world of nonsense? We'll leave you to churn through those two statements and extract the butter of truth for yourself. In the next episode, we turn inward and march towards freedom. Real freedom. Until then, stay awesome. And I know I find sweet beauty in the heart of the Lord. And I see no separation and want no reward, only love. Everywhere I see. sets me free to be without becoming this all that good or bad to share a peace
peace and unity with all our 